Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 94. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you of a few things. You can like me on Facebook, just Facebook slash Brian McClanahan. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, and you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just do a search for Brian McClanahan, and it will come up with that. Also want to remind you, of course, you've heard it at the beginning of the show, that if you do want to pre-order my how Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, and get the giveaways for that. You can go to BlameHamilton.com, follow all the rules there, and pick up a goodie, The Jeffersonian Tradition. That's uh, the ebook that I give you uh, for uh, pre-ordering one book, or the six-lecture course uh, on Alexander Hamilton if you order two or more, plus the ebook. So uh, one uh, person on Twitter did say that the ebook itself was worth the 10 bucks they spent on uh, pre-ordering the uh, the Kindle version of the book. So uh, go on out there and get those things. It's highly worth it. Uh, also, if you do like this podcast and you want to support The Brian McClanahan Show, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support, and you can donate a penny or whatever you want to send to The Brian McClanahan Show to help keep the lights on, help keep things going. I do enjoy doing it, but it's also nice to have a little bit of financial support as well. And I uh, just want to remind you, if you do go to brianmcclanahan.com, you can give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook and audiobook. Uh, that would be the Forgotten Founders of both, and of course the audiobook, audiobook is read by yours truly. So head on over and do that too. Uh, and you will get emails from me periodically, so at least twice a week, uh, maybe sometimes more than that, particularly as we get close to the launch date for how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. Okay, well, this, uh, this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show is going to be is a, is a listener-based request, and I do these uh, quite often, but uh, this particular one I liked. I was actually at the Abbeville Institute Summer School uh, this past week, and I had a student come up to me and say, you know, I don't know much about the Whigs. Can, can you do a podcast maybe on the Southern Whigs? And I haven't done anything on the Whigs, and so I thought, well, that would be a good podcast to do. Uh, so what I'm going to do is give you a little bit of history of the Whig Party, but I'm going to focus more on the unknown element of the Whig Party, and that would be the states' rights faction of, of the Whigs. And, of course, that was a group that was um, uh, very popular in the South, particularly in the 1830s and 40s. By the time you get a little bit further forward, the, uh, the states' rights faction kind of fizzled out. But uh, particularly, of course, the Whig Party died 
uh, after uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. But um, I think it's important to understand what the Whigs were, at least initially, and some of the people behind the formation of the Whig Party, because that would give you a, a bigger perspective as to what's going on here in the uh, United States government in that particular period of time. So uh, first and foremost, how did the Whigs come about? I mean, this is often a question. You know, we had the uh, in, the, in early America, we didn't really have a two-party system. What we had was a, was a two-faction system. We didn't have political parties like we recognize them today until Martin Van Buren made it his, uh, his goal in life to establish what we would recognize as modern political parties. And so that actually began happening uh, in the 1820s. And uh, by the 1830s, we had very much had the creation of the first modern political party, and that was Martin Van Buren's Democratic Party. And, of course, Van Buren being from New York, uh, he uh, organized the New York faction, uh, the, the Jackson faction, essentially, in New York around a political party with campaign slogans and, and buttons and you know all these things, a nominating process, all these things we were recognized with a modern political party. But the other faction didn't really have that. Now, uh, in, in early in American history, we didn't have, we didn't have parties at all. So when you look at, we talk often about the Jeffersonians or the Hamiltonians or the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, these essentially were factions. These were groups of people that would solidify around a candidate or a core uh, uh, set of principles, and, uh, but they didn't have nominating conventions and they didn't have all the stuff that we recognize today for your political parties. You did get political songs here and there and you had some things like that, but it wasn't this formal process that we see today. So, of course, after the War of 1812, the Federalist faction, uh, and I'm actually going to talk about uh, the, this one part of this Federalist faction in, in the next episode of the Brian McClanahan Show, but this Federalist faction is discredited. Uh, and that's because they had supported the potentially the secession of New England from the Union. They had also been uh, obstructionist during the War of 1812, this New England faction, and uh, they had uh, openly opposed the Madison administration. And so... The, uh, these Federalists were very much discredited, and uh, they started calling themselves Republicans because, well, it's kind of like back in the 1990s when all of these Democrats switched over to the Republican Party because the Republicans are now in power. They're seen as the more conservative group, uh, and so they just became Republicans to get on the committees and other things. Uh, they didn't really change what they were, but this is a way to keep gaining elections. I mean, nowadays... Uh, Southern Democrats, unless you're in certain election districts, don't have a shot. So you got to be a Republican. Uh, and so even if you're not really Republican, you're going to call yourself that just to just to get uh, the the nomination, the, the party's nomination for office, and then you should get elected. It's been that way in the South. When it was the Democrats, it was the same thing. Basically, the South is a one-party section. Now it's the Republicans, used to be the Democrats. So you had this, this group, though, of, of Republicans that were not necessarily in line with the Jeffersonian principles of limited government, of uh, strict construction, these type of things. They were former Federalists, and also they were in some ways this burgeoning National Republican faction. Now, what are the National Republicans? James Madison in so many ways, can be considered the first of the National Republicans. You know, Madison, when he went to Philadelphia in 1787, was a nationalist. Uh, it's only after the Constitution was written and then went through ratification that Madison 
started arguing for a constitution that was written and drafted in, in, in Philadelphia and then ratified by the states. But he had favored in Philadelphia a much more enlarged central government with much more power than what it actually got. Madison, for example, wanted an amendment to the Bill of Rights, which would have applied certain parts of the First Amendment to the states themselves. So the states could not have abridged uh, freedom of religion, for example. But that was rejected. Uh, so Madison was much more of a nationalist than, say, uh, you know, many of the other members of this Democratic-Republican faction. And so when he's president in 1816, he makes a uh, State of the Union address where he calls for all kinds of things like federally funded internal improvements and a central banking system. And uh, he, he advocates uh, what would later become known as the American system by, that's championed by Henry Clay. And of course, if you know anything about American history, that's the exact same agenda that Alexander Hamilton had in 1791. So Madison, it appears, has dropped his strict construction stance for a much more national perspective. He wants a national university. He wants some things that would be seen as unconstitutional just maybe 20 years prior, uh, or not even 20 years, you know, 15 years prior, say, during the Jefferson administration or even during the John Adams administration. These things would have been seen as, um, as unconstitutional. So uh, you, you have a situation where uh, Madison has adopted, it seems to be, has floated to the other side. But he really didn't. Uh, he just thought that some of these items, a national agenda, was much better for the Union at this point than, uh, than perhaps the Democratic-Republican strict construction agenda. And it's important to note, there's a book out there, out there about this it's in, by a man named Drew McCoy, and it's entitled The Elusive Republic. And he gets into the, to the, na the growing nationalism of, say, James Madison. He also talks about Jefferson a little bit. And I'm going to do Jefferson in the next podcast on one particular issue. Again, another listener-sponsored uh, episode. But uh, Madison had kind of had drifted towards this much more national perspective. Now, he believed that we needed a, an amendment to fund internal improvements. He didn't think it was constitutional. He thought there needed to be an amendment to do this. Uh, but he did support the creation of a second bank of the United States. And his reasoning was, well, uh, we've, we've, we had a bank before. Uh, it was uh, passed into law. It worked okay. Uh, and so time and, and precedent has made this thing constitutional. Now, that's a pretty silly argument. But this is what Madison had said in 1816. In fact, he vetoed uh, one bank bill because it wasn't what he wanted. And then, of course, they got another bank bill that was uh, that was more in line with what he wanted. And, of course, that became the second bank of the United States, which is going to be highly controversial by the time we get to the 1830s. It's highly controversial before that, too, 1819, the case of McCulloch v. Maryland. But this is, in so many ways, the beginning of the Whig Party because Henry Clay was very much behind this nationalist economic agenda. Now, Henry Clay, being from Kentucky, was a Southerner. And there were a lot of Southerners who liked Henry Clay. There were a lot of Southerners who didn't like Henry Clay. One of the most famous being, of course, John Randolph of Roanoke, who I talked about uh, in an earlier podcast. I think it was episode 83. John Randolph despised Henry Clay. Uh, but Henry Clay was a very good politician. Better, one of the better politicians in American history in terms of cutting deals. I mean, my gosh, he was known as the Great Compromiser. He could cut deals. He organized factions. He was really good parliamentarian. 
Henry Clay was one of the greatest of all the American politicians in American history. Was he a statesman? Mm, not really. He was more of an opportunist. Opportunist. He was more of a, of a person that would float in the breeze. Now, he did have principles, but those principles would go by the wayside if it didn't work to his benefit. He was power hungry. Uh, so Henry Clay uh, was a very important guy. Now, we move forward a little bit. We've got uh, the Monroe administration, and you can still see uh, a lingering, you know, kind of this uh, national Republican faction there. Uh, and Henry Clay, of course, is very much behind it. Now, Monroe was much more principled in terms of strict construction than, um, than James Madison. He had always been that way. James Monroe was one of the leaders of, a, of the strict construction faction in Virginia. And so we don't see as much of this nationalism during the Monroe administration that we saw at the end of the, of the Madison administration. But you've got it in the Congress. You've got these national Republicans, uh, and they are a faction now within that Republican Party. James Monroe was almost unanimously elected president. He fell, by, fell short by one vote, and that's because the one elector said, well, I can't have James Monroe being the unanimously elected. The only one who can do that is George Washington. Uh, so... Um, the fact is, Monroe was very popular because he had this unified Republican Party. There was no opposition. But, of course, under the surface, you started seeing things pop up. Now, some historians will say, well, under the surface, there was the slavery issue. And the slavery issue was splitting the factions because the evil Southerners were out there pushing the slavery issue. And this was going to cause all kinds of problems in the future. Look, look at Missouri. All right, so we have the Missouri issue. And Monroe was steadfast in uh, uh, a steadfast objection uh, to the admission of, Mo of M Missouri without the status of a slave state. And that's because he believed that states could decide what they wanted. And he was 100% constitutionally correct in that position, which is why he would not allow Missouri to come into the Union, to be blocked by the Congress under a constitution that had been ratified by the people of that state. States could decide. This, even John C. Calhoun said this. Look, when he supported the admission of Michigan as a free state, he said the people of Michigan have decided. So the people of Missouri can decide. The issue, of course, came down to slavery extension of the territories, and I did a podcast on this one. You know, why slavery? Why was it important to make slavery an issue uh, in the antebellum period? Well, it comes down to political power. And, of course, this would benefit the North to make slavery an issue. And Henry Clay started realizing that he could gain uh, a strong alliance of Northerners and Westerners to combat the power of the strict construction estates in the South. And Calhoun even recognizes at one point, he said, you know what, we're doomed if we don't start taking a much more nationalist approach to economics and uh, you know political economy. We're doomed because uh, we're going to be rendered to a sectional minority. Henry Clay is going to organize this, this uh, majority of the West and the North, and we are never going to win an election. So for a long time, it had been the North that was the minority that would never win an election. And fairly in fairly short order, it's going to be the South that's a minority that can't win an election. But that's going to take some time. Uh, so Henry Clay is out there, and of course, as this major figure in this uh, National Republican faction with the American system in his pocket, uh, Henry Clay becomes a figure, a pivotal figure in the creation of the Whig Party. So fast forward, we've got the election of John Quincy Adams in 1824. Uh, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, 18, uh, yeah, 1824. And uh, John Quincy Adams is, uh, 
Well, John Quincy Adams is um, a, a national Republican. And when he's elected, uh, he starts pursuing that national Republican agenda. Now, of course, the, John, the uh, Andrew Jackson people will cry foul in the 1824 election because uh, John Quincy Adams was supposedly selected by the corrupt bargain, right? This is where Clay and Adams are seen having supper together before the election was held in the House of Representatives. This was, uh, of course, that was the way the 1824 election was decided. Uh, that's also the interesting part of this 1820s and 30s period. That almost happened a couple of times in that period. But the election of 1824 is decided by the House. It had been decided by the House in, 18, in the 1800 election as well. So we've had this twice happen now within uh, 24 years. And uh, the, the thing is, Henry Clay was the Speaker of the House, and he orchestrates John Quincy Adams' election, even though Adams had fewer votes than Andrew Jackson. So Andrew Jackson starts calling this corrupt gar- bargain because Henry Clay was appointed as Secretary of State, and that was supposedly the deal. John Quincy Adams becomes president, and Henry Clay is chosen as Secretary of State. Now, why would that be the deal? Well, because the Secretary of State position was the pathway to the presidency. You know, James Monroe had been Secretary of State, John, uh, James, uh, James Madison had been Secretary of State, uh, Thomas Jefferson had been Secretary of State, so obviously, and John Quincy Adams had been Secretary of State, so obviously by becoming Secretary of State, you are next in line to the presidency. So this was a coup for Henry Clay, at least he thought. So now he's Secretary of State, and the Jackson faction, which now starts calling themselves the Democratic Republicans, won't let John Quincy Adams live this down. So still we're looking at the Republicans, but two factions within the Republican Party, the National Republicans and the Democratic Republicans. Now, some of those National Republicans were at one time Federalists, but not all of them. Some of them were Republicans. Uh, They had been kind of Madisonian Republicans there at the end of his term when he started becoming a much more nationalist president. Uh, And so that National Republican faction favors that American system or Hamiltonian system. So we get to 1832, or 1828, I should say. We get to the 1828 election, and now it's Adams against Jackson, and Jackson wins. And Jackson, of course, has uh, John C. Calhoun as his vice presidential uh, uh, nominee as well. So these guys are apparently on the same page. Now, Jackson, of course, uh, did not like Calhoun. He did not like Henry Clay. There were personal reasons for this. One, because uh, after, uh, first of all, Henry Clay and and, uh, Calhoun had wanted Jackson censored for his activities in Florida uh, while James Monroe was president. He never never forgave them for that. And and, uh, plus... He really hated Jackson, really hated Henry Clay because he thought Henry Clay, and he was right about this, was behind the letter that had exposed his wife, Jackson's wife, as a bigamist because she was still married when she married Andrew Jackson. And so uh, Rachel Jackson had a heart attack before the before Jackson was sworn in as president in 1829. And so he never forgave Henry Clay for that. He blamed Henry Clay for the death of his wife because of the stress. Uh, And so uh, this is this is an interesting part of the story of the Whig Party. So Jackson comes into office and he has this Jeffersonian rhetoric, you know, limited government, return government to the people, um, strict construction. But as uh, as a senator from Tennessee and when campaigning, Jackson was very much a nationalist. He never really said anything about the bank. He didn't say anything about internal improvements. He didn't say anything about tariffs. Those those issues, I mean, he just they just weren't really that important. In fact, uh, David Crockett, 
who uh, didn't really like Andrew Jackson, had called him out for his inconsistency. Well, wait, this guy, he's, he's not really against these things. I mean, you can't say he is. And in fact, Andrew Jackson was much more interested in national power and particularly uh, particular executive power than many people were comfortable with in the United States Congress. And that becomes apparent as we get to the nullification crisis. So in 1828, before Jackson becomes president, the Congress passes what South Carolina will call the Tariff of Abominations. And so this Tariff of Abominations, very high tariff, and uh, uh, the, the South Carolina legis- legislature will call it oppressive, unconstitutional, and unjust. And they start urging resistance to it. And in fact, in 1830, Webster, uh, Daniel Webster and Robert Hayne will have this famous debate in the, uh, in the Congress about it. And, uh, you know, Webster now becomes this nationalist because it works for him, you know, before he was a sectionalist. In fact, New Englanders were always sectionalists. They weren't really ever nationalist. They're only in favor of a position that furthers their, their cause, their political economy. And, uh, you know, Robert Hayne will eventually be elected governor of South Carolina. And then John C. Calhoun will resign as vice president and become senator from the state of South Carolina. Uh, and Jackson, of course, takes a very cold stance towards the nullifiers. Uh, he says this is this is a disunion, uh, this is treason. Uh, you cannot be opposing federal taxes. That's just something you simply cannot do. And Jackson, of course, is going to dust off the uh, Washington stand and the Whiskey Rebellion. And as South Carolina begins to agitate and agitates further for uh, the reduction of the tariff, they do nullify the tariff, and Jackson threatens to send in the troops. Now I've talked about this on the podcast about nullification. But Jackson now has become King Andrew to many people in the South, particularly in South Carolina. In fact, they start calling him that, King Andrew, the man who abuses power, the man who wields uh, power like a king. Now, remember, this was one of the fears of the founding generation when it came to ratification of the Constitution. The opponents of that document were very suspicious of executive power. They thought that the executive branch had tremendous potential for abuse. And of course, they were right. Uh, But they were promised, even by people like Alexander Hamilton, blame Hamilton, hashtag blame Hamilton, they were promised that the president would not have any close resemblance to a king. Now, Hamilton, of course, had advocated for an elected king and said, you know, we're going to get there anyways. Might as well just skip the process and start now. And I think he's been proven correct about that. But uh, here we are, 1828, 1829, 1830. And uh, Jackson, even going into 1832, and Jackson is now viewed as a man wielding too much power out of the executive branch. And so when we get to the 1832 nullification crisis, and Jackson, of course, is, um, is elected president again, there is strong opposition to Andrew Jackson in South Carolina. Now, before the election, this came to a head, and South Carolina had nullified the uh, the federal tariff, and uh, Jackson had threatened to send in the troops. So at this point, a faction they start calling themselves they start calling the supporters of Jackson in South Carolina the Tories, and we start seeing a faction a group the faction against Jackson in South Carolina start calling themselves the Whigs. So they've gone back to these American War for Independence labels. You've got the Tories, which are like the court party, those that support a powerful executive, strong central authority. And then you've got the Whigs, the country party, those who are opposed to strong executive power and strong central authority. And the Whig party is born. And so in so many ways, the Whig party is actually born out of 
strict construction. Now, it doesn't stay that way. And this is why you have a faction, you have, you have this loose faction, loose co uh, you know, uh, collaboration of people like Henry Clay, who is a National Republican, who doesn't like Andrew Jackson either, and then people like John Floyd of Virginia, who is a ardent states' rights Democrat, uh, or people like John Tyler of Virginia. And see, in fact, Virginia is the key to all of this. Virginia, even though South Carolina took the most open stand uh, in regard to the tariff and nullified it, Virginia was behind them in many ways. In fact, the only person, there was a large group of Virginians behind them, the only person who voted against the force bill in the United States Senate was John Tyler, uh, whose father had been messmates with Thomas Jefferson. John Tyler had supped with Jefferson as a boy. And so you had this Virginia faction beginning to dominate. And not only that, uh, you had these terms thrown out in South Carolina. You had the Tories for the Jackson, King Andrew, and then you had the Whigs. And so as we start moving forward into the 1830s, this Whig party begins to form. And by 1840, they had adopted Martin Van Buren's tactics, party conventions, nomination platforms, all these kind of things. Uh, and they did them better than the Democrats did in the 1840 election. But before we get to that, Let's talk about some of the people that were pretty interesting in this early Whig party from that states' rights faction, which was integral to the formation of the, win of the Whig party. You wouldn't have it without that states' rights faction. So oftentimes we think of the Whig party as the National Republicans, as the heirs of the Federalists. We think of the Whig party like Abraham Lincoln or Henry Clay. Lincoln wanted tariffs and internal improvements and central banking and all those kind of things. And that later became the basis of the Republican party. And uh, you know, when the Democrats are out of the Congress, well, that's what you get. But there were a large number of Whigs that were strict constructionists. And they didn't want any of that stuff. They didn't want a bank. They didn't want internal improvements. They didn't want any of that stuff. But what they really bristled at was executive power. Even Henry Clay, if you look at Henry Clay's opposition to, to John Tyler, for example, one of his biggest complaints was that Tyler was acting like a king. This is what the Whigs kept saying about John Tyler. This guy is a king. Uh, now, they didn't like the fact that he was vetoing all their legislation, which he said was unconstitutional. So here you have a conflict. The Whigs are saying the president can't do this stuff. And the president's saying you're passing unconstitutional legislation. This was a battle over what type of federal power we would have. Would it be unconstitutional federal power or would it be constitutional federal power? And I think that's where the, where the uh, states' rights, quote-unquote states' rights faction of the Whig Party was more in line with the old Jeffersonians. So John Floyd is the nominee for the state of South Carolina, or at least this is who they give their electoral college votes to, in 1828. John Floyd of Virginia, he had been a general uh, and, and served in the War of 1812. And then, um, and then of course, he became a, a United States senator and uh, governor of Virginia. This guy was really important uh, for uh, the state of Virginia. But unknown today. Now, there are some very good uh, books on John Floyd in public domain. Uh, nothing's really been written about John Floyd in years. Uh, so John Floyd is one of these guys that's out there, and I, I recommend to graduate students all the time, pick people that nobody's written about and write about them. Go out there and write about John Floyd. He had a very interesting political career. I think one of the more interesting in, in the United States Senate in the 1830s uh, and 1820s. Uh, and, and the Congress, I should say, in that time period. And, of course, he's a presidential nominee in 1828. 
He got electoral college votes, received electoral college votes from South Carolina. So here's a man that's been virtually forgotten, but we need to know more about. And I, I advise people of a certain ideological persuasion to this because your, your point will not be condemnation. It will be to understand John Floyd and who he was. And usually it'll be a good history if you do that. So John Floyd is one of them. Another one uh, is Hugh Lawson White, another guy. He's from Tennessee. Uh, he's another one of these anti-Jackson, uh, King Jackson kind of guys. He, in fact, has supported Andrew Jackson. So did John Floyd when Jackson sounded a lot like a Jeffersonian. But once Jackson became president, he's not that anymore. And now you have this guy that's a much more uh, ardent centralizer. So Hugh Lawson White was uh, in, in, against what Jackson was doing in terms of nullification. People like Willie Mag, uh, Mangum of North Carolina, uh, who was uh, opposed to Jackson. Now, Mangum had uh, supported things like the bank and, uh, and tariffs, but he did he bristled at uh, Jackson's stance on nullification. So uh, he, and this is where you start seeing the Southern Whigs. In some ways, you know, the Southern Whigs, uh, people like Alexander uh, H. Stevens uh, would support the same type of Whig economic agenda. Uh, they didn't they didn't differ over that with, uh, but they did differ when it came to the slavery issue in the territories because they thought that uh, this was an attack on the Southern people and it was unnecessary. In fact, you know Stevens uh, was against secession because he thought everything could be worked out through the Union. Uh, this wasn't uh, you know this wasn't something that needed to be done. In, in uh, 1860 and 61, he thought. And then you have people like John Tyler, again, an ardent states' rights Democrat, uh, and it opposed, become opposed to the Jackson administration and Van Buren. And so this is why, uh, you know, Tyler uh, was nominated by the Whigs in 1840 as vice president, because he was going to bring in these states' rights guys into the fold. And he did. He did. Of course, he becomes president, and then that blows their entire economic agenda up. But John Tyler was principled. He, he was a member of this early Whig faction that did not believe in the abusive power of the central government. And you had people like Abel Upshur, who was also a Whig, but wrote a wonderful treatise on uh, Joseph Story's commentaries on the Constitution, just ripped it apart from a states' rights position. And so you've got these Whigs. This is the kind of the forgotten part of the Whig faction. You had these Whigs that were pretty much states' rights guys. That's all they were. They were states' rights guys, and they did not like the Democratic Party because that was the party of Jackson, and, and they thought that had gone uh, too far towards support of oppressive or unconstitutional executive power. And they didn't care for the Henry Clay National Republican faction of the Whig Party because they didn't think that the National Republican economic agenda, the American system, was constitutional. And they were right about that. So uh, these guys were a very interesting group. They thought that, the, that Henry Clay was, uh, was doing things that were just as unconstitutional as Andrew Jackson. Now, of course, when John Tyler becomes president, the Whigs are going to call a cabinet. The Whigs in his cabinet will call a meeting and say, hey, look, John, we got it. Uh, you just rubber stamp what we're going to do, and we'll go from there. And Tyler says, no, I'm the president. And so this is where Henry Clay bristled at, at John Tyler because he thought John Tyler was wielding, wielding too much executive power. And, of course, that comes down to uh, interpretation. John Tyler was doing what he thought he should do, which was vetoing unconstitutional legislation. He had taken an oath to defend the Constitution, and he actually said that to Henry Clay uh, on at least one occasion 
where Clay was trying to bully his way around and get what he wanted. And then, of course, the Whigs expelled John Tyler from the party. I think that point in 1841, 1842, when the Whigs boot John Tyler out of the party, that's when the Whig party changed. That's when it became much more National Republican dominated and these states' rights guys were out and never come back. I mean, they never came back to the Whig party, never back in the fold. Many of them would just eventually join the Democrat party. But it was that move, it was John Tyler becoming president, where the Whig, the, the states' rights faction of the Whigs was essentially booted out, run out of town by the other Whigs, and the National Republican faction becomes ascendant. It wasn't necessarily certain that was going to be the case, but it turns out that way. So when you look at the Whigs, you have to look at states' rights as the basis of the early Whig party. And this is why in my book with Clyde Wilson, Forgotten Conservatives in American History, I have a, a, a chapter entitled, True American Whiggery, and it was you know, Upshur and Tyler. And uh, that's a chapter I wrote, and it was one of my favorite chapters to write because I get to talk about this states' rights faction of the Whig Party and how important they actually were to the initial fabric of the Whigs and how we often forget that. We just think of Henry Clay. We think of you know, Abraham Lincoln. We think of uh, you know Alexander Stevens. But you had all of these early uh, members of this Whig faction, and they were states' rights guys. John Floyd, Hugh Lawson White, John Tyler, Abel Upshur. They were states' rights guys to the core. It's just that Henry Clay took over the party. Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, of course, took over the party and made it something like the Federalist Party uh, in terms of an economic model. So as we move forward in time, you get to the Southern Whigs. A lot of them would have similar views as the National Republicans from the North, uh, and uh, you know people like Stevens and others, yeah, they would be essentially national Republicans, uh, but they started splitting with the North over the issue of slavery extension, and so eventually a lot of these people found a home in the Democrat Party. So that's I hope this answered the question that you know talk about the Southern Whigs. I think it's important to look at that early formation of the party and some of these interesting people in that early group, and you get a better understanding for what the Whigs actually were. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time.